0: Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K, where together we can reimagine GI care. Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski, and we're going to open the show as we always do by stating that the goal of this series is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but also outside of GI as well. We return today to an interview with a representative from the plan side. Actually, our guest is as much of a provider as a plan representative, so I guess we're getting a twofer. The guest today is Dr. Roy Beveridge, who for six years was the chief medical officer of Humana. From my interactions with Roy, at his core, Dr. Beveridge is still a physician though. He practiced oncology for many years until his administrative skills were put to use. He functioned as the medical director of US Oncology, and after its purchase by McKesson, he became the chief medical officer for that organization. Following this, he moved on to Humana. Today, Roy spends his time consulting and, and advising. As a point of disclosure, Roy advises us at Sonar MD and is on our governing board. Welcome to the show, Roy. Good to talk to you, Larry. I want you to take off your oncologist hat and put on your plan medical director's hat. So let's start by talking about the move to value-based care. What are the major issues facing health plans today? What are their most significant problems?
1: Fee-for-service medicine is a challenge for us all. I think quality of care is a huge problem, and I think equity of care remains a huge problem for you know us as a society. It doesn't matter whether you're a plan or whether you're a provider or you know you're a citizen of our of our country. Um, you know we've got to have good, reliable quality. We've got to have equity in how it's distributed, and it's got to be done in a cost-effective manner. Um, so I, I think. I think it doesn't matter where you sit in, in in the world in the US right now, but that's that's what we've got to focus on.
0: Is value-based care really a high level priority for the health plans? And if so, what are the major goals in
1: developing value-based care programs from the plan level?
0: What are you trying to accomplish?
1: I, I think it you know if you look at what CMS is doing, CMMI, they're doing the same thing that all payers are doing, which is trying to figure out um, how there's some control on the fee for fee, for, fee for service spend. And, you know, I think that, you know, for certain subspecialties, you know, like, like GI for neurosurgery and things like this, um, there may be less of a, precise need for value-based care. But certainly when you start thinking about primary care for cardiology, for oncology, for a number of other types of medicine, we've got to think about how how you rein in some of this um, wild cowboy type stuff and go back to things that and I think the GI doctors have done really well over time, which is, um, you know, implementing standardization, um, pathways, guidelines, so that there is a you know consistent standard, which is which is expected by everyone who pays for healthcare, and is what is delivered.
0: You know, you mentioned guidelines, and in my previous life, I was the representative at the American Gastrological Association to the quality measures committee and guidelines committee. And, you know, we, we really work hard to develop these guidelines. The, the societies expend a lot of time and energy on them. And I know the plans favor whenever there's an available guideline, but but Roy, it just seems like there's a, there's a mismatch between the time it takes to create these guidelines and the enormous need for
1: more and more of them. Evidence-based medicine is something that we should all want and expect and hope for. But then if, there, if that is aligned with a pathway or a guideline um, that then becomes i think the best uh, the best standard uh, for you know society as a whole
0: so when you were in your role at um, Humana would you keep a library of these guidelines and, and refer to them um, uh, when you're approving or overseeing the care provided uh, on on the uh, patients that were contracted with Humana
1: well I, I think you know when you look at what CMS is doing and you think about what all all payers are doing they look to the societies to say what is you know what is evidence-based medicine and and and, and what is best um, do, does do medical directors keep rolodexes of you know what's the uh, what's the pathway for I don't know Ulcerative colitis? No, because we. In, no, no offense. I'm an oncologist. <laughs> I have trouble keeping up with with what I do, right, um, right. and don't do that very successfully. But yeah. I think that um, what what society, what CMS, what payers do is they they look for accredited organizations to say these are evidence based pathways and this is what you should use and i mean that that, that's that's we that's what we want you know payers and government and everyone else to do we want we want the experts to take best best knowledge put it together and then say this is how it should be used but but you know larry the 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 other point of view with that or the other the other sideline. Is that once the guidelines are 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 constructed, they've got to be used, and you have to think about you know what's the level of deviation from from those pathways, and you know you, you can never expect people who are not specialists to be um, trying to oversee subspecialists. I mean you know, people don't have that that capability. So what people are looking for is um, the self regulation of subspecialties and others to say this is this is what's best care, this is what's good care, this is what's cost effective care, um, and you know this is what we want you know our society members to be to be doing. Does that does that make sense? It it does make sense, Roy.
0: It makes a lot of sense. The the challenge I've always faced is that we publish guidelines, and whenever I I still read all my journals, and when I see a guideline, it's one of the first things I I go to to review. Um, the the problem I I struggle with though is we don't get feedback back into the societies as to whether that guideline actually resulted in the outcome that it was designed to produce. Mm -hmm. We don't have a feedback loop. And I've always, I've always argued for years at the society level that one of the first things we should have done was reached out to the medical directors like yourself, the chief medical officers of the major plans to say, okay, which guidelines should we be creating? Where are the needs? Because then the payers do have the claims data that could, in one way or another, assist us uh, in determining as to whether the implementation of those pl- those guidelines actually resulted in a positive outcome.
1: So it's interesting you say that, because when you think about guidelines, you know, you you go back to some of the early publications from 10 or 15 years ago when like Atul Guande and others you know would would talk about how the surgeons um in their operating rooms began to standardize the use of this instrument or that instrument this 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 is the way of doing this procedure and you know, there was significant improvement in um short-term mortality and, and, and complication rates. And then you kind of move over into what the cardiologists did um, in terms of standardization. Then the oncologists started to do this. And then each time there, there was a feedback loop. So in surgery, it was, it was pretty fast. In, in cardiology, it was longer. But in oncology, it was really related to the drug utilization and, and side effects and cost. Yeah, and I and I and I think that you know part of the whole calculus that we as clinicians need to think about is moving from um, thinking about that one individual that we take care of as an individual, which which is what I want when I go see my doctor, no question. But if I were to go to see someone. In Washington D.C. or Chicago or Seattle, with the, with the exact same set of issues, boy, you'd you'd really hope that you'd get pretty similar treatment, be it by a cardiologist, cardiologist or a surgeon or oncologist, um, in in any of those those places. And so I think part of that feedback loop is actually the standardization itself. And I think the other thing that we don't talk enough about is by standardization, do we reduce errors in terms of our nurses making fewer er- errors? Do we make fewer errors? Is it, is it accepted by the, the practice that you're working in that it's a standard so that the nurses and MAs and everyone else knows what's gonna happen? And then does that then also re- result in reduced costs? And I don't think we should shy away from standardization you know, using evidence-based medicine and, and using one of the feedback loops is reducing complication rates and reducing, you know, global costs.
0: Well, you know, I've been pleased to hear how much you spoke already today before you even used the word cost. And, you know, what, what I'm hearing from you is that the focus of the chief medical officer for a plan is trying to make sure that the right, the right things are done for the right patients at the right time for the right reasons. And, and I like your, your, cowboy, your cowboy term, you know, we have to not so much have cookbook medicine so that everybody's forced to follow a recipe, but we all should be able to conform to guidelines so that we can have a predictable, as much of a predictable outcome as possible when we're providing care, so
1: that so word quality. So, so, look, 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 so look, Larry, can I? Uh, I agree with exactly what you said. But you know, when you when when your listeners are, are thinking about this, remember that you know whether you're a someone at CMS who's thinking about things from a government standpoint, or whether you're thinking about a medical director from a commercial plan, they're representing. Our neighbors and our people and ourselves. The, the, once the rule is set, say in Medicare and CMS, it's the same for everyone. I mean, it, it doesn't. It's not different for Larry or for Roy or you know, you know, someone down the street. The, the rules are the same, and this, it's the same same thing in terms of commercial insurance. I mean, the the plans represent the, the wishes of the employer groups that people are in. And the employer groups wanna keep their employees healthy and functional and everything else. And by the way, the employee groups are the same people who work at HR and the CEO and everyone else at, at that company. So um, there is standardization also within the people who you know, are trying to set policy. They're trying to set policy so that it's, it's equal for, for everyone. Which gets to the point of, you know, um, equity. And so I, I just think that's a point for people to, to remember.
0: You know, quality, we've always defined it as, as, or value is defined as quality plus service, you know, divided by cost. And we can certainly measure cost, we can measure service. That quality component is a different one, difficult one to define, but I can see that I can see where you have moved um, in your definition of it, and it, it is based upon outcomes, so it probably doesn't make as much sense to look for all these process measures unless they're associated with a definable outcome that's good for the patient. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Dr. Roy Beveridge, the former CMO of Humana. And we are discussing value based care issues from the point of view of the plan. Um, the question of the one patient at a time versus population health. Everything in our training is a one patient at a time training. And, you know, even our, our EMRs mm-hmm. are based upon one patient's record at a time. And In order for us to function the way we have to going forward in value-based care, we've got to look at populations. And the payers have the data on the populations. Um, And I know from our experience at Sonar, when we've been able to share data back and forth, it's made a big difference. How How do we make this even more meaningful? to be able to utilize what data we have available from the plans and the providers to try to uh, augment the, the movement to population health.
1: You know, what's that expression that they talk about now, you know, data is the, is the new oil, um, you know, <laughs> c- compared to the the early 1900s and no matter how you look at it, um, data is really important. H- who owns that data and how it's distributed is is, is complicated. I think, you know, in this political divide that we have in terms of red and blue, um, both sides recognize how important uh, data is in, in, in medicine. And I think both sides are, you know, trying to figure out how this, this data infrastructure is used uh, more, more effectively. Physicians have a lot of data on, on patients. Hospitals have a lot of data. We've got to figure out ways that the transfer of the data for the benefit of the patient is, is, is most important. You know, it's, it's not just going to be the, the government or the hospitals or the payers or whomever. It's really going to be an effort by the big data companies along with everyone and I, I think some of it's going to be some personal responsibility in terms of patients saying the data is mine or, you know, I, the data sits here. And I, I think we have to be careful for personal rights to make sure that, you know, we're not usurping people's privacy. Somewhere we, we have to be able to open the, the flows of data and
0: still figure out how to protect people's, you know, personal personal uh, uh, items, the payers know everything that's happening to the patient. The provider only knows what they have
1: in their own EMR though. Yeah, you know, the the way that I think about it is that the the doctors, the hospitals know it really deeply, but it's in Mm -hmm. a very restricted manner. Mm -hmm. I think the payers understand it in a very broad manner, but not that deeply. From a patient's perspective, you know, we, we really need to make sure that it's held in, in a compliant manner, but it's used for the patient's benefit. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's what society wants. That's what I want, and I know that's what you want.
0: So, when you were at the plan, what kind of data were you looking for that you didn't weren't able to get that would have made your decisions easier?
1: if you think about gastroenterology as an, as an example, whether you're CMS or whether you're a plan or whether you're a delegated network or, or whatever, um, you know, you're really relying on the specialists for specialized, you know, care. Um, make, make no mistake. No one at the government, no one in plans, no one elsewhere understands Crohn's ulcerative colitis. Um, the, you know all the complexity around GI disease, like, like the gastroenterologists. There, there's there's such a opening in the world for um, specialty societies and and entities to educate and and be responsible in terms of information flow. I don't think you know CMS or plans or anyone believe that they're smarter than. You know, GI doctors when it comes to GI issues, or cardiologists with you know um, you know cardiac issues, they don't. But what, what what I think what people I think what society is looking for is it gets back to the first discussion. What's good quality, and where should we spending money? I mean, no matter how you think about it, we we still as a society have a limited number of resources to spend on things. I mean no matter how you, have, how you think about it. And we as physicians should be thinking about helping the individual, no question. But we should be thinking about, you know, how we should be helping populations of people in the best cost-effective manner and making sure that we're, we're doing it in a pattern which is replicatable, mm.
0: Let's, let's move on to, I wanted to spend a little time on risk management since it's really what payers do best, they manage that risk. Um, there's been so much con- consolidation. The, the plans consolidated 20 years ago, up to 10 years ago or so, and the, the provider space has markedly consolidated over the last 10 years. Now we have private equity entering in the provider space. We've got, we've got plans, purchasing uh, providers. Do you have any vision as to what the risk-bearing entity of the future is going to look like?
1: Is the future next year or 10 years? 10 years. 10 years. You know, I'm having trouble imagining what the world's going to be like in five years. <laughs> um, you know, I... I think what we can say in five or ten years is, I think you just have to go back to the macro aspects of our economy, um, which are that you know we are we are graying as as a nation, um, we're living you know long lives as as a nation, people are stopping work you know in their mid sixties or seventies. But they're alive for a long 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 time I um, hope so right <laughs> you, <laughs> you and I absolutely Let's hope so. um and and then I think chronic illnesses are what is becoming the most important part of um, of health care spend it's it's not it's not breaking your arm or having a car accident or you know, um, random events that happen when you're under the age of 50 or so. It's the it's the accumulated, you know, um, chronic diseases that that we're all exposed to. Um, and I would say, in you know, um, in GI, when you start thinking about obesity issues and liver disease, I mean, I'm not I'm not a gastroenterologist, but I do look at that data and I scratch what little care I've got left and go this does not look good Mm -hmm. um -hmm. and um so I think that's what I'm I'm much more worried about Larry which is um how are we going to take care of a very large number of older people with chronic diseases
0: so the entity that is most capable of managing the polychronic patient mm-hmm. is the one that's probably going to be the aggregatable entity for from a business point of view.
1: And I, I would I would say that, so the subsegment of what you just said, which is exactly right, is what entity is gonna be efficient and how do you get efficiency? And to get efficiency, you have to start going back to some of the things we talked about, which is pathway usage because then you, it's predictable Usage Americans. usages of you know and you know people in the system who may not have gone through four years of medical school and seven years or you know, six years of you know postgraduate work and things like this. We may need to be using more technology, more you know home um, engagement, and 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 people who are less. Um, um, sub for more general things.
0: Wow. That, those were prescient words because currently today, I think already 83% of the, the cost of healthcare is in the management of chronic disease. Hmm. And with the aging population, boy, that's,
1: that's not going to go down. That's going to continue to go further. Well, I don't know what Larry, I don't know what the average age of, uh, Gastroenterologists, but I think it's fifty. Oncology, it's like fifty-six or something, yeah. and I, I may be off by a little bit, but I'm not off by much. Yeah. But what is it in GI?
0: Fifty-eight. The last last number I saw was yeah. was fifty-eight. It's yeah. it's scary to think that <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> so it's
1: like they better keep propping propping us up. Is that that's that's the concern?
0: What well, do you remember at the end of the nineties? They cut back so many of the mm-hmm. specialty training programs because we were all going to become primary care. Yeah, that's what was going to happen, and I don't think they ever populated a
1: lot of those
0: those programs. Since then, they're still running at,
1: at yeah. lower levels. So. But I also think that gets gets back to the equity issue, which is when you think about where you know where the subspecialists are. I mean, we know the subspecialists are. You know, in the suburbs and the you know the in exurbs, mm-hmm. but you get out to rural areas, um, and I don't know what the numbers are, but you know, okay. mental health experts in rural America. I mean, there are just so many states that have so many counties without specialists like mental health people, um, and that that from an equity standpoint, that's a problem. Those yes, Really, really important points. Roy, I, uh, I think that's
0: the end of our show today. I really thank you very much uh, for being on. You certainly got me thinking. For the audience, uh, you can learn more about our show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HCNOWRadio. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, payers, and plans together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. K. Tune in with me next time to reimagine the scope of GI care. If we build it, they will join